Hello and welcome to SpexCast, a podcast about the science and technology of space exploration. My name is Phil, and I'll be your host today alongside Drew. Howdy. And TJ. Hello. SpexCast is brought to you by RIT Space Exploration, also known as SPEX, a student faculty research group at the Rochester Institute of Technology. On this podcast, we delve into the technologies that make space exploration possible. You can learn more about SPECS and SPECSCAST at our website, specs.rit.edu. Also, the SPECSCAST blog is back. Check out show notes for our new episodes and other articles about happenings in the space industry at blog.specscast.com. Today, we'll be talking about a few hot topics in the space industry. Let us know what topics you would like us to discuss in the future by sending us a tweet at RITSpecs or an email at specscast at gmail.com. So there are, there are two big events that really happened in this past week. Um, around the March 11th is when we're recording this. And the first one is South by Southwest. Elon Musk made an appearance there and had a few things to say about SpaceX happenings. And the second thing is the MIT New Space Age Conference 2018. And um, a lot of industry leaders gave some presentations, and we have a lot of cool stuff to talk about there. Yeah. First up, South by Southwest. So this was, uh, kind of preface this, this week we thought was kind of a, a slow news week. Nothing really happened. Uh, we came up with an episode and researched it and recorded it. And uh, the day before we recorded it, both of these conferences happened. Everything gotta... happened. Oh, my God. <laughs> Wild. Um, so first off, South by Southwest, uh, traditionally not a space conference. Uh, it's more of a tech and art and interactive uh, experience festival uh, that's been gaining popularity every year uh, for a while now. But anyway, uh, at the Westworld panel, uh, which is an HBO show, it's really, really good. Uh, the uh, filmmaker, uh, Jonathan Nolan, uh, had a surprise guest. Um, so there's a video uh, that you can look at the actual surprise reveal. Uh, but basically, uh, he's close personal friends with Elon Musk. And before the Falcon Heavy launch, they had talked about uh, ways to inspire the general public. And uh, we're actually going to have a blog post that delves more into this. Uh, Phil put his excellent blog post up about dummy payloads and the use of dummy payloads. Uh, and we're going to have a post on whether uh, it's important to inspire people and in the role space and space programs have in society uh, following this. But they wanted to do something that was inspiring and to get people, normal people, to talk about space again. Um, Jonathan Nolan mentioned that his grandparents were the generation that went to the moon, that walked on the moon. And for his entire life, humans haven't walked on another uh, planetary body. Um, and so it's kind of fallen out of the public consciousness. Uh, so uh, they created the Falcon Heavy and Starman video. Uh, you can see it on YouTube. Uh, but basically, it's relatively short. It's about a minute and a half. But it has some really great behind-the-scenes footage. Uh, and it has a very uh, inspiring vibe to it. Because not only does it have great shots of the Roadster and the team of engineers that integrated it, which is great, but it also has lots of footage that they recorded and found footage from launch day where it showed the huge crowds of people uh, at the Cape and a lot of shots. I I think my favorite part were a lot of shots of kids with parents like holding their kids up to get a better view and kids with binoculars watching this and really showing that excitement of how it inspires the next generation. Yeah, everyday uh, people. Exactly. Uh, not just space fans like us, but just every you know anyone that was able to drive out to Florida that day uh, could experience that, which is really awesome. Mm -hmm. uh, my grandmother emailed me to let me know that she watched the live stream as it was happening of the Falcon Heavy launch, which is not something she would have typically done. You have an awesome grandma. <laughs> Yeah, so it's a really cool video. Um, I think the highlight for us space fans was the actual uh, release footage of the, the fate of the center core. So on launch day, obviously, we saw the side boosters return successfully. And we had heard that the center core uh, didn't have enough ignition fluid for to ignite all three engines. So only one engine ignited and it cr 
crashed into the barge at roughly 300 miles an hour. Uh, however, uh, from the video, uh, you can actually see that the first stage misses the barge by like a hundred feet, like a very close near miss. So instead of a giant fireball and instead of completely destroying the metal steel deck of the barge, uh, it goes right into the water and you just hear this giant cloud of steam and smoke, um, which ties into the reports we got about the booster or the uh, thruster pods on the barge being damaged because there was a massive underwater explosion very close to the barge that damaged those uh, internal machines. Uh, but while the rest of the barge looked pretty undamaged. So super awesome footage. That's designed into the system because if this exact problem happens, um, it doesn't wreck the barge, the autonomous spaceport drone ship. It doesn't wreck the ASDS completely. Um, so it, I mean, the system is working, it, and we got some really great footage. Um, if I if I may, I kind of want to respond to the video itself. I did rant about Humanity Star and Starman. Um, I will admit it was a rant, and I put it on the blog post as an op-ed um, showing, you know, looking at history and dummy payloads that I thought were useful versus, you know, a, a missed opportunity or wasted potential. And... We all, we got, um, you know, seeing this video and the response from the general public and also, um, people, uh, have responded to us on Twitter. Daniel said, well, I agree SpaceX should have put some sensors on their spacesuit. I feel that using something like Starman captured the imagination of millions and will lead to far more advancements by those who come next than a few tests ever could. Um, so thanks for the tweet, Daniel. And to respond to that in the video, you know, I agree. I was personally like felt inspired and moved by this video. It's you know I didn't expect myself to and and stuff like that, but impeccably edited. The soundtrack was amazing and those great shots. It's just you know if the everyday person does get as excited about this as the people that are retiring from NASA now um, felt when they watched people land on the moon, you know we've got a new. Uh, golden age for space exploration on the horizon. So, um, well, I, I, you know, I still wish they put sensors in that stupid spacesuit. Um, the inspiration does have a significant and lasting effect in popular culture, especially if this is not a one-time thing. And as we see Blue Origin, um, and SpaceX and all these small time launchers and reuse and all these amazing new technologies that we're talking about every day come online, you know, it's, it's going to be awesome. I'm so excited. Yeah. And I, I, I value the, the inspiration and PR aspects that something like Humanity Star can have in it, in itself. So I don't think every payload needs to be, um, a sensor payload. Or uh, an experiment, but I do agree with you, Phil, that you know they could have done both. They could have put the sensors in the spacesuit, and it still would have been a spacesuit driving the car through space. It would have been awesome, but there could have been some more use to it than just the inspiration. But I do value that PR aspect and the inspirational aspect of these quote-unquote useless dummy payloads. Definitely not black and white as far as um, value goes, but... Um... Yeah. We've been reading a bunch of articles recently that have talked about space exploration. Why explore space anyway? And this is a common oh question that comes up. You know, they're suffering on Earth. Why would you waste money trying to go out into the cosmos where there's essentially nothing, or at least nothing close by? This triggers TJ. Um, we're going to have a very <laughs> long blog post about this because earlier this week we found two articles. One, uh, just a argument against space exploration in general, and another... Uh, directly anti-SpaceX and anti-Elon Musk. Um, and so we're going to have a full written response because we've covered it in different parts in the show. Uh, but we're going to kind of go in depth in the blog post. So you can check that out in the coming weeks at blog.spexcast.com. Elon Musk briefly talked about this at the Westworld panel saying, quote, life cannot be, be about solving one sad problem after another. There needs to be things that inspire you that make you glad to wake up in the morning and be part of humanity. That's why we did it. We did it for you. End of quote. Yeah. 
the argument like things are bad enough here why spend money on space exploration you know well tj said we'll talk about that in depth in a blog post uh moving on uh there was a second event at south by southwest the next day uh elon had a q a um now there were lots and lots of non-space related news in there um, which you can watch the video because there's some fun stuff and some ridiculous stuff. But there's uh, three main things that aren't uh, breaking, breaking news, but they are uh, reconfirmation of stated goals, which is always good to see. Uh, first is uh, people have told me, uh, Elon at the talk said, people have told me that my timelines historically have been optimistic. I'm trying to recalibrate. What I do know is that we are building the first ship. We will be able to do we will be able to do short flights in the first half of next year. It's a big booster in ship, Saturn V, thrust 2X. So uh, there's two things to kind of price out of this. It's a reiteration of the timeline to fly the big Falcon or big F in spaceship uh, early 2019. We covered how it's either going to be flying out of Boca Chica uh, their new launch pad in South Texas, or we'll be doing uh, drone ship to drone ship hops in most likely the Gulf of Mexico if they're going to be basing operations out of Boca Chica. Uh, and as of right now, that's just over a year away on the far end if that timeline holds, uh, which seems pretty crazy. And also um, just another direct confirmation that the very first BFS is under construction in a factory, which is extremely surprising. Yeah, I mean, so in the Elon likes to do this. If anybody at all has one piece of hardware, he would say, yeah, it's being worked on, and turn to the engineer and go, you're going to have it done by next year, right? You know, like, that's Elon's way of doing things. So, mm -hmm. But the fact that the resources, you know, confirmation, yes, resources are going to this. We've already seen uh, Block 5, Falcon 9, Coming to, coming to its stopping point, um, stuff like that. So Yeah. Uh, now, on a more pessimistic end, um, from another high-up SpaceX individual uh, at the MIT New Space Age Conference, Paul Wooster, who is the principal Mars development engineer, uh, so the man directly in charge of BFR development, uh, reiterated the IAC 2017 presentation, same slide, deck, and talking points, uh, but he mentioned that it's still a relatively small activity at SpaceX. Um, so we're going to talk about like manpower uh, later on the episode. And SpaceX has about 6,000 to 7,000 employees. A small fraction of them are working on BFR development. And a smaller group of that is bending metal or bending carbon fiber uh, for BFS. But uh, he mentioned that that's going to increase over time. And once Falcon 9 and Dragon development are done... Um, the majority of SpaceX is going to be devoted to that. And that's important because if you look at the timeline of flights in early 2019 and uh, early 2020s for full stack flights, uh, Dragon 2 is going to have its first unmanned mission this year and ideally their first manned mission at the end of this year. Um, and while SpaceX has historically iterated on that and we do expect iterations to come on Dragon 2, uh, especially with Cargo Dragon 2s, which are a different design. Uh, Falcon 9 Block 5, as Phil mentioned, is done. Uh, and they're going to be transitioning to just manufacturing those. So we're going to see Falcon 9 development kind of drop off. Then Dragon's going to drop off towards the end of this year. And suddenly that workforce, uh, not all of those 6,000 are development engineers. That includes a large manufacturing base. Uh, but a lot of the development resources are going to be going full in into BFR. Yeah, so, you know, hype train doesn't stop here. Um, but that's BFR. That's the rocket booster stage, um, which is basically scaled up technology that they've already developed. So BFR covers this BF, the BFS and the That includes the spacecraft? Together. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I've been using the, the spacecraft as the part that goes to orbit, right? Yeah, and as Elon mentioned before, the BFS is the most complicated part. And so they're trying to get that done first, uh, solve the issues with that first, because uh, they seem very, very confident that uh, the booster part 
can be achieved without any major roadblocks because they have the Falcon 9 heritage. So the the ship to ship, you know, takeoffs and landings for BFR. That's just BFS. That's the very top part. That's not the booster. Okay, so the space, the actual space sh- big fat space shuttle looking thing is going to be the one doing the ship to ship test and at the end of 2019. I like big fat space shuttle. Uh, when we covered this announcement, like that's the, that's BFS B- big fat space space shuttle. <laughs> the BFS like. It looks very much like a space mm-hmm. shuttle with the primary take turned into this, the fuselage yeah. element. Uh, so as much as the uh, space shuttle uh, has some connotations behind it, uh, it does look like BFR will have a space shuttle component. So he said that the BFR flights will cost less than a Falcon 1. So somewhere in the range of like 5 to $6 million per flight. That's way less than what it currently costs mm-hmm. to fly anything. I mean, that's based on um, reuse, too. Like, it costs yeah, SpaceX a lot more money to build the rocket and the spaceship, obviously. But for e- refueling the airplane, you know, that same old analogy. Uh, interestingly, it's... It, it, if I recall correctly, Elon's um, cost estimates have not been as wrong as his time estimates. Can you guys confirm that? Like, is that is that true? Do you think it's actually going to be five to six million dollars per flight? I think it's important to qualify that number with the fact that that is the does probably does not include development costs, which is going to be right. billions or tens of billions of dollars, and that has to be amortized over every launch. Uh, so, like down the road, if you have full reuse, you've hundred percent operational, out, paid off, everything is done. Yeah. Then that's what they think they can they can hit with five or six million. That's a surprising number. Uh, at the IAC, we were gotten we originally thought we were going to get a five hundred thousand dollar per trip number. Uh, Elon even said a two hundred thousand dollar per person number. Uh, what six million dollars with a hundred people on board is sixty thousand per flight. Now, obviously, there's a lot of external costs with a Mars trip. Uh, because you have operational cost and the actual destination and all that kind of stuff. Um, but that's a really interesting number um, because theoretically the bottom price floor for a uh, Mars launch is $60,000 per head. Now to kind of do a little bit more analysis, again, we're so far out from this that doing intense analysis on these numbers is not really realistic. But um, kind of look into the secondary use case for BFR, which is point-to-point flights. We saw that takes the full booster plus spaceship. Um, if you take the uh, low end of that number, so $5 million, and say, okay, for a 20- or 40-minute flight, you don't need to have individual berths and bunks and supplies for 100 people. Maybe you fit 300 people. Elon talked about pressurized volume equivalent to an Airbus A380 main deck, which is about 300 people, that's $17,000. So with $60,000 per flight, that's that's a really hard sell uh, for point-to-point travel across the earth. But if it's 17000 that starts to look like a more achievable number. That's still relatively high, in my opinion, if you're looking at first-class trips on an airplane, which you can be in very high comfort, uh, but it's going to take upwards of 20 hours. Those are in the low thousands and around 10,000. So it's still more expensive than luxurious first class. Uh, but it's you start to see the number of, hey, this might be a service people would buy. Because a lot of people's time, you know, 15 or 20 hours of their time uh, is worth 15 or uh, 17K, especially different companies and different critical people. Yeah, I think, I think you hit the nail on that there that it's, it's going to be for, if it remains at this sort of price figure, it's going to be for the ultra-rich or companies or governments. But I think, more interestingly, I think it could be used for cargo, and I think that's probably where it will go for suborbital flights. Speaking of cargo and the, you know, the level of people willing to pay this much, are you guys forgetting about the military? Having... Anywhere nope, under- I just didn't want it to be a military thing. I don't want it to be a military thing, but... The thing with the military, like, that's a, a, a really good discussion to have. And the issue with space-based launch 
in that suborbital stuff is that yes, there's value in getting a large, like a large batch of troops or a large amount of military equipment from point A to point B. A couple tanks but, uh, and across the earth exactly. under an hour. But the um, uh, follow-up question is like, oh, yeah, you can drop tr- a bunch of troops behind enemy lines within an hour, but there's a giant fireball meteor that they can see. Um, so it's not super practical, and it's not super safe. I just mean like yeah. you've got your troops training in Virginia, and you want to get them over to wherever they're deployed rapidly. Um, it, it's like instead of going on a C-130 or a, a ship somewhere. Yeah, it's just it's very it's a very in my mind it's a very hard sell to say like I can deliver a very fragile, very risky batch of troops in an hour anywhere on the earth versus via plane in 15 hours because the u.s military has a robust network of refueling where we can send planes non-stop anywhere on the earth so it's it's very much a special use case type of technology yeah it's something that the the department of defense when they talk about space applications they don't really talk about like point-to-point transport they talk about uh, with DARPA and with XS-1 the ability to rapidly launch payloads into different orbits, and that's mainly uh, the main risk that they see. Side topic onto military space: the main risk they see is that we've built this elaborate infrastructure of GPS satellites, communication satellites, spy satellites right. over decades, and in a serious conflict, that could be entirely wiped out within hours or days. And being able to put up replacements is really and really important really and getting those places up fast but uh, okay last thing five to six million dollars per flight long-term goal bfr uh reasonable yeah i think it's going to go up i think it's going to go up obviously especially in the near term uh <laughs> because you have to pay for all that development um and especially i don't know i don't know i don't even know who's going to ride on it first so, well, I think it will increase, um, but maybe flights will be so frequent and so common in the next probably you know hundred years. Probably we wouldn't look at this in terms of near decades, but hundred hundred plus years away, maybe it'll be so frequent that disregarding inflation, it would be less than five million or six. You're talking about five million dollars in the next hundred years when Elon's talking about launching test flights in a year and a half oh no i'm saying that within the next within this century probably that will come down but i mean we haven't seen a huge reduction in the cost of aside from reusability like this reusability has been the major cost reduction right in the past the entire time we've had space exploration okay so let's 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 back up before we get into decades and centuries the five to six million dollar number, we've already mentioned that that is after prices have been amortized and the development costs. You're just looking at you have the production cost of one and you take fuel costs, operational costs, uh, reusability inspections. That's like the ideal target. But if you look at Falcon 9, with reuse, we've seen an estimated 10 to 15% discount on a Falcon 9 flight. Uh, hopefully with block five, we see a more significant discount there, but it's been slow. Um, and SpaceX has those significant development costs to pay back. And so with a BFR, um, I don't think uh, going back into decades, I don't think the first decade or two of operation will be at that five to $6 million number, but it's a good, you know, uh, accounting, it's a good accounting exercise to see, okay, here's our price floor that we can hit. That we should strive to hit. Uh, it's going the very first few launches. It could be very expensive. So, like uh, with this number, we don't have the itemized cost sheet to see. Okay, fuel costs this much. Production uh, for a vehicle over X amount of flights costs this much. We don't have a way. Like we don't have the data to of where that number came from. And so it's hard for us to say. Oh, those that line item or those two line items are unrealistic, or they might increase. Uh, so again, with being so far out with these ballpark estimates, uh, while they're promising, 
All we can say is let's hope they hit it at some point. All right, let's move on to the second event that happened this weekend, um, the MIT New Space Age Conference. Yes. So this conference uh, was actually like extremely exciting. Uh, they were able to get a very large number of important industry people, mainly New Space, uh, hence the New Space Age Conference, which I think is just a great, uh, great name for a conference. Uh, so first up, uh, we'll talk about Blue Origin. So they had two people representing Blue Origin at various talks, uh, Dr. Erica Wagner, who is the business development manager for Blue Origin, and Rob Meyerson, program manager uh, for the aerospace business leader group there. Uh, so first off, uh, these are all uh, quotes uh, based on tweets from reporters who were there. So first off, thank you to Jeff Faust for covering this live and bringing this information out to us so that we can talk about it. Uh, and also that these people were at different sessions throughout the weekend. Um, so these are not in order. And we'll try to make it clear who said what uh, for each of the different topics we cover. First up, engine development. Uh, Meyerson did a really insightful uh, talk on their engine development and the progress of Blue Origin. And I just wanted to kind of run through where they've been uh, and where they're going. Uh, so in the future, we'll actually be covering Blue Origin in depth. Um, but yeah, this will be a nice little primary going forward. So first up, uh, there was the BE-1 engine. So this was uh, H2O2 uh, monopropellant engine. So that's taking a chemical and running it through a catalyst so it decomposes into a hot gas and then pushing that out of a combustion chamber. So that was about 10 kilonewtons and that was pressure fed. Uh, next up, they did the BE-2, uh, which was H2O2, uh, and that was reacted with RP-1, so a bipropellant system that had 140 kilonewtons, so a order of magnitude more thrust, and that was pump-fed, and that um, also contributes to that thrust because you can force those chemicals together at a higher initial pressure. Then next up, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more, the BE-3, which if you've been following Blue Origin, uh, it's probably the engine you're most familiar with uh, since it powers New Shepard. Uh, the BE-3 has 440 kilonewtons of thrust and is a liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen engine, and that's also uh, pump-fed. And there's also a upper stage variant, the BE-3U, which is 533 kilonewtons. That's mainly through the larger expansion nozzle designed for vacuum. Uh, same fuel type, uh, and has that vacuum nozzle. And then lastly is the BE-4, which we've been talking about. New Glenn will be powered by that, and also Vulcan, which we'll get to, is potentially planning to use BE-4. And that is another uh, order of magnitude increase, uh, 2,400 kilonewtons. And that's liquid oxygen and liquid natural gas, or a methyl ox cycle. And that's also pump fed. So first up, uh, Meyerson had a lot of good stuff to say about the BE-3. Uh, quote, the BE-3 engine is the cornerstone of our vehicle development. We expect it to be iterating on its design 50 years from now. And I thought this was really interesting because it looks like the BE-3 might fill the role of the Merlin uh, that SpaceX uses, where they've iterated on that and they've built all of their vehicles until BFR using the Merlin engine. Mm -hmm. And so BE-3, this is New Shepard. This is a small one. Um, New Shepard is suborbital, um, but they've got the vacuum engine, so I suppose it could be used as upper stage, and we've talked about um, Blue Moon, which will get to in a bit smaller sized spacecraft again a couple hundred kilonewtons of thrust i thought this was really interesting that they chose that one to iterate on um it seems like the scale is getting larger if you want to take something outside of earth orbit you know you need a bigger engine maybe all this other types of thing why would they iterate on be3 also uh second second case here this is hydrolox um liquid oxygen and um LH2, why not choose to iterate on the uh, Methylox BE4? I, I, this is very surprising to me, but I think I'm missing some key logic here. What am I, what am I missing? So I think uh, it's really interesting if you look at the Blue Origins plans outside of launchers, the BE3, it looks like they've chosen the BE3 to be their 
go-to engine that powers those. So you mentioned Blue Moon. Uh, we covered that in the prior episode, uh, episode 33, where we actually talked about Grey Dragon, as well as the Blue Moon white paper, which has turned into a complete national focus for the U.S. on lunar activities, where a unmanned lunar lander that uses hydrolox in the BE-3 would be able to deliver cargo and science experiments to the lunar surface. And also, the Blue Origin also talked about building a space tug that would be uh, that would take payloads from low Earth orbit to the moon, uh, to moon orbit. And so it looks like they're using liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen, as their fuel of choice for this cislunar architecture, which is really interesting because traditionally for deep space or long-term missions, where you would use a hypergolic, storable propellant uh, design because you have less worry about boil-off and less worry about propellant freezing. And wh- why is that? Hydrogen is really hard to keep in liquid form, so you need to keep it very cold, and it, it's very hard to store for long periods of time. Um, I guess when you talk about the lunar surface, you could bring in the case of um, making your own hydrolox fuel from water that's found in lunar minerals? I think that's really the keystone here, where they know that they could potentially generate the fuel needed for these spacecraft from the moon. You can't do that with hypergolics. And so that's an interesting, like, secret key point to their architecture where, okay, like, you're making interesting engineering choices that, you know, don't really make sense if you're just trying to build reliable safe craft for the space but once you bring the point in wait the moon is going to play a key part in that of supplying fuel to these vehicles then having a full hydrolocked architecture makes a ton of sense mm-hmm. and uh there are a few more points we want to make about blue origins talks at at mit space conference but i think the long game is a theme that we're going to see coming from Blue Origin for, for some time to come. Yeah. Yeah, the last thing on uh, Blue Origin engines uh, with the BE4 development, uh, Meyerson said that they were still testing. Things were going along uh, according to plan. Uh, things to note is that the power uh, they had a BE4 power pack failure uh, earlier uh, last year. What is the power uh, pack? It, the power pack is all the turbo pumps uh, that take in tank pressure liquid propellants, pressurize them, and inject them into the uh, combustion chamber. So they had a power pack failure, uh, and the fact that ULA has not officially selected the Vulcan engine. So as we mentioned uh, years ago at this point, ULA was looking at uh, the BE-4 and from Blue Origin and the AR-1 from Aerojet Rocketdyne, and BE-4 has been in active development. It's been going to be used for New Glenn. Uh, it has a lot of private funding behind it. And it looks to be, it looks like ULA had already decided everything except on a paper contract. And there's been rumors and speculation and other stuff coming out of Aerojet Rocketdyne where they don't really want to be building the AR-1. And uh, actually in the last quarter, dramatically dropped the amount of funding they're putting into it. Uh, but we haven't officially gotten a confirmation that this is the engine, which is unusual because for years it's been expected and assumed, uh, but that just hasn't uh, gone forward yet. So did we did um, Meyerson give any more details on that selection process? Or nope. The... Okay, just I guess we'll, we'll see. Shuffle, shuffle it under the board. That's that's part of the mystery. Is Many people in the space industry expected this to be officially confirmed and locked down years ago. Years ago, yeah. So uh, upon uh, just a very tests and stuff, we thought, but yeah. So they're waiting for those successful tests. We talked earlier about you know Elon Musk has said his timetables have been optimistic in the past. I mean, with everyone in the space industry, everything takes longer than you expect it to. Yeah. There are very few projects that are ahead of schedule. That's true. So yeah, let's talk about those estimated plans, schedules, and flight rates. Yeah, so uh, the first flight of New Glenn is still scheduled for 2020. Mm-hmm. And Mayerson mentioned that early New Glenn launches will be payloads, not human flight. Uh, that is in contrast to New Shepard, which 
had a capsule on top designed for humans, and they're planning on launching humans to suborbit later this year. Uh, New Glenn launches will be payloads, and it might be seven to eight years after the first New Glenn launch before they start launching people on that vehicle. And they'll need to significantly increase the launch rate, um, which he says they're planning for an initial launch rate of 12 launches per year. So this is kind of really incredible news. Yeah. Because if you look at pretty much every new space rocket provider, the initial test flight and the initial uh, couple months or years is a very low launch rate, Mm -hmm. right? With SpaceX, we saw uh, they launched two Falcon 9s uh, in their first year in 2010, but in 2011, they launched zero, and it wasn't too, too, wasn't until 2012 they launched the first Dragon to the International Space Station. And after eight years of launches, they're finally hitting 15, aiming for 30 launches this year. Something like Rocket Labs, uh, they're planning on, uh, they've done one launch their first year, a half dozen launches this year potentially. So it's unusual for that to be a stated goal of we want to launch one rocket per month for the first year it's flying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that shows their confidence um, in it. I guess maybe um, you know they're still considered a new space company. If the first flight is 2020, that gives them a few more years to really tighten up the design, play the long game, make sure they're doing everything the right way instead of the you know try fail improve repeat i guess fail fix repeat or whatever it is um it's also going to be interesting in that they have said that they want to try to reuse or land and then reuse new glenn on the very first flight mm-hmm. so they showed the render of the massive cargo ship with a deck on it uh but if they do their first launch and they don't stick the landing on the first time which is something to be expected from uh, past experience. Does that affect the 12 launches a year, or are they going to do as many tweaks as they can in a month and then launch again? Mm-hmm. Um, another thing that comes to mind, first flight in 2020, um, Tori Bruno, uh, CEO and president of ULA, has said not too long ago on Twitter, um, gave his thoughts on the timeline of Vulcan. ULA expects Vulcan to come online, start launching things around 2020. Um, so does that make Blue Origin a competitor? And if so, that's kind of weird because the BE-4 might be flying on Vulcan, but also powering New Glenn, which is a competitor. This is a weird situation here. Yeah, it's one of those things that we've covered where... It looks like ULA is trying to corner the NASA and Department of Defense payloads with Vulcan, and New Glenn will stick mostly with commercial payloads. So we talked about market share. Let's talk about profitability of Blue Origin. So yeah, profitability is something that comes up a lot because Blue Origin has has been around for a long, long time, uh, from the very early 2000s, and they have not... Uh, done any revenue generating launches as of yet and they're planning to launch their first uh, passengers in 2018. Uh, Now they can be afforded that because they have Jeff Bezos as a primary investor and backer. Mm -hmm. Uh, So Erica Wagner mentioned that when she joined six years ago in 2012 Blue Origin had about 170 employees and now it's up to about 1400 employees. For reference, SpaceX has about six to 7,000 employees, and ULA in 2017 had about 3,700 employees, although that's been reduced to around 3,000. So just to kind of give you a scale, they're still incredibly small compared to established launch providers, but they have grown dramatically. So uh, during the Q&A of Erica Wagner's um, presentation, someone asked when we might be able to see some of these profitability, some of Blue Origin start to make money. Um, and Wagner said, we are moving from R&D to operations, but the horizons are long and we're lucky to have patient capital. So another example of the long game that they're banking on. Yeah. Yeah, it's, I think it's really interesting that they're targeting 
They've done their development rockets, right? BE-1, 2, and now New Shepard with BE-3, um, where they've learned how to build rockets, but now they're going kind of going all in. Like, we have a very large, very capable launcher. We're going to build a giant factory. Mm-hmm. We're going to scale up our workforce, and we're going to have... I'm really excited to see a finished, exciting product in 2020 uh, that's going to provide a lot of good competition in the launch industry. Uh, so we talked about uh, Blue Moon in depth. Uh, it was originally a white paper uh, published by the Washington Post, developed by Blue Origin. Uh, so check out episode 33 for that in depth. But it is a lunar lander powered by a BE-3 engine. So it's actually very similar to the ASIS-derived uh, lunar lander that was also a white paper that came out a few years ago. Uh, so that's for taking payloads, small payloads, from lunar orbit down to the lunar surface. So Rob Meyerson also mentioned uh, two things uh, about lunar missions. Going back to the moon is extremely exciting. In early to mid-2020s, we'd love to put a lander there with people following. So that's directly referencing the blue moon lander. But he also mentioned a reusable space tug that would move payloads between LEO and cislunar space. And I think, you know, we already mentioned that Blue Origin is appearing to build a Hydrolox lunar transportation architecture around the BE-3 where they can take launch large payloads to low Earth orbit with the BE-4 and New Glenn and then use this tug to take them from low Earth orbit to the moon and then use Blue Moon to get those payloads from lunar orbit to the surface. So like that's a really interesting architecture that we haven't really seen from a lot of competitors. Yes, ULA has Cislunar 1000, um, which uses ASIS for do a lot of that. And I think that's really interesting that we have now two companies that have relatively fully fleshed out architectures for this market, uh, which just over a year ago, we did it. It was mostly focused on SLS and then Mars. Now a tug between, or a tug ship between Leo and cislunar space, that sounds like a job for electronic propulsion. Have they talked at all about this? Are they going to use one of their engines, or is this going to be a job for electronic propulsion? With like solar electric propulsion, that's probably the most efficient system. So if you had to bring up all your fuel from Earth, solar electric propulsion would be the most efficient option. But the one thing they haven't announced is them using lunar resources to generate fuel. If they manage to do that, then Hydrolox becomes an ideal choice because you can refuel at Earth and at the moon, and Hydrolox is one of the most efficient chemical propulsion methods. Yeah, that's the one piece we're missing, and it's probably obviously because the actual utilization of that, converting it from like maybe lunar material into fuel is advanced technology that hasn't, you know, that that's the part that's missing from all of this. But everything points to that. Yeah, doing lunar ISRU at scale is something that has never been done before. Like we've landed on the moon, we've returned samples from the moon, but developing the industry to turn thousands of pounds of lunar material into thousands of liters of liquid hydrogen, liquid oxygen no one's done that technology. So that's a really exciting thing that these companies have to have some people working on, right? Mm-hmm. Because SpaceX and Blue Origin are rocket engineering companies first. So engines, rocket bodies, spacecraft. The ISRU is that critical element that makes the economics of the vehicles work. And so I wouldn't be surprised that over the next year, two, three, massive hiring and massive devotion of resources at that problem by those two companies and probably we're to see a lot of startup companies that target that market so they can have a drop-in solution for these other providers i think that the in-situ resource utilization is i mean it's a really cool topic especially when we get into asteroid mining but i think at least in the near term when this infrastructure is being built up it's gonna have to be a job for or electric propulsion it's one of those things where the reason we're seeing these larger rockets being announced, BFR and New Glenn, is that 
the first trip there and back, you have to bring pretty much everything. Uh, and so if you, if you overbuild your rocket, you can therefore send a small payload to your destination. Then you can build out the ISRU over multiple flights, and then you can get back to the economies of scale. So like with chemical propulsion, it's hard and expensive to drop big payloads on bodies without ISRU. And so I'm def I definitely think that drives up the scale of we need, it, it needs to work on the first flight. It's got to be big. And then once we set up the ISRU element, we go from big rocket with small capability to big rocket with big capability. And that allows an explosion of growth uh, for future missions. Another talk that went on was um, Greg Burgess, the VP of Technology Space Systems Group of Sierra Nevada Corporation, gave um, us some new info about Dream Chaser. Uh, he said 85 to 95% of Dream Chaser mission costs is the launch. Various companies, including ULA, are working to reduce launch costs. He said, quote, multiple companies around the world are proposing to do future Dream Chaser launches after the first two, which are on the Atlas V rocket. So um, in the past, Dream Chaser, which is um, basically a tiny little... Uh, a space plane thing that's launched up on a rocket returns um, it, by gliding. Returns to land by a runway, yeah. By a runway, yeah. And it, we, we saw pictures of it landing uh, a couple months ago. Um, in the past, they've talked about different launch platforms from um, they're launching on Atlas V. They could possibly launch from the Strata Launcher Virgin Orbit. He did hint at multiple companies uh, possibly looking at launching Dream Chaser. Do you think that's reality? Or do you think that's just kind of, you know, keeping his cards close to his chest, not giving away too much information? Yeah. I think that if you, if his cost calculation is correct and 85 to 95% of the cost is in launch, then it absolutely makes sense to switch from Atlas V. Atlas V is not the cheapest launch vehicle out there. And it's important to note that Dream Chaser has been scaled down. Uh, when it lost the commercial crew um, contract, they scaled it down to have cargo. And now there's a expendable cargo module that goes uh, on the back of it. Uh, so it's a much smaller vehicle. And so if they can drop costs by 30 to 50%, either with a reusable Falcon 9, like a Block 5 Falcon 9, or with air launch on Virgin Orbit, then they become a very compelling uh, option for NASA. Uh, and they're part of the uh, commercial cargo two contract. Uh, and I think that's like a, it's a, a pretty much a no brainer, right? If you can adapt it to a different vehicle for uh, a relatively reasonable cost, then that could get paid back over a handful of missions. And uh, I think that's a really, really exciting comeback um, from Gene Chaser because it, it was this ideal mini space shuttle and it lost out to the more traditional capsules uh, in Dragon 2 and Starliner. And now we've seen it, a resurgence of it could corner the cargo market, uh, the commercial crew or the commercial cargo uh, market for ISS. Mm -hmm. And so it's launching inside the fairing of an Atlas V. So in theory, if it can fit inside the fairing of any other launcher, um, or be launched um, via air launch, like a, like a plane flies up and then it launches from the plane. That's um, got all those options available. So one of the reasons why you say it would corner the cargo market is because it would be a lot cheaper than the cargo version of Dragon 2 or aboard a Starliner capsule. Yeah, so with Dream Chaser, it does a gliding vertical, gliding horizontal landing on a runway. And with Dragon 2, since they've canceled propulsive landing, Dragon 2 has to land in the water, uh, just like Dragon 1. And we saw with Dragon 1, the very first reused Dragon 1 cost roughly 100% of the cost of building a new Dragon, and they're trying to get down to 50%, right, because there's still water intrusion. But if they can do a glide to land, refill the hypergalls, do an inspection and launch, they have their own not rapidly reusable, but low maintenance reusable platform. 
And the only competitor is Starliner. Starliner lands with retro rockets and airbags on land. Uh, but we don't know how much maintenance and refurbishment that will take. But it should be less than a water landing. So it looks like that, you know, it took them a while to get to this point, but they might have a competitive technology that could, uh, you know, win, not win the competition, but win over market share and become the, the best option, which is awesome. Yeah, it's a really cool concept and it looks amazing. Um, so I'm really excited for that. We talked a little bit about the uh, Institute resource utilization with Blue Origin. Um, so there's another company that that's kind of their focus that was also at the, the MIT conference. That's Planetary Resources. So TJ, you want to talk a little bit about them? Yeah, so uh, Chris Lewicki, who is the president and CEO of Planetary Resources, uh, spoke at several panels, and we'll go over some of the really interesting things he said. Uh, but for those who don't know, Planetary Resources was founded in 2009, so they're almost at their 10-year anniversary. And their mission statement is to provide resources to fuel industry and sustain life in space. So exactly the kind of stuff we're talking about with a cislunar water economy. Uh, and their main product right now is the ARCID-6, which is a 6U uh, form factor CubeSat. And they've been actually putting a ton of these up with really new advanced sensors. Uh, and the idea there is to scout out potential uh, asteroids for future mining robots. So yeah, a few quotes from him. Um, We're at a historic inflection point in space with technological innovation and increasing markets politics, quote, is starting to catch up as well. So uh, politics historically, in, like, it's a slow-moving machine. Um, it makes sense that it is. Um, obviously, technology moves much quicker. But finally, that big ship is starting to turn and favor these more advanced space exploration markets. The main thing there is the public policy in space that has to change to accommodate commercial space and commercialization of space and we had a whole episode dedicated to the commercialization and public policy uh, so episode 13 titled asteroid mining and public policy anthony hennig who did his master's thesis on the public policy changes required to make asteroid mining and that kind of commercialization uh, politically possible so check that out because we go really in depth into the political intricacies that need to be changed for this industry to blossom. Yeah, it's really um, just as critical as the technology development. So speaking of uh, planetary resources itself, he said, we're not a space company. We're using the tools of the space industry to do the business of a mining or energy company, which have long timelines for their projects. So planetary resources will, wants to mine water in space uh, for these, you know, cislunar and deep space architectures, um, which I think is super interesting. They've been developing spacecraft and um, space imaging, space systems and all this stuff. But, but um, here we see him reiterate and say, like, no, 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 this is just so we can do the mining. The mining is the real goal. Yeah, I think it's an interesting attitude shift where, you know, this is the new space age conference and planetary resources is what we think of as a new space company, but they're trying, to, I think this is a, you know, it's all wordplay, but I think they're trying to distance themselves from traditional old space, which has uh, an aversion to risk, high cost, and they're like, no, we're not trying to emulate those, we're trying to emulate traditional mining companies that uh, just handle risk a little bit differently, handle timelines a little bit differently. And I think that's an interesting attitude where we go from just having a global or a U.S. space industry that does space stuff and that industry starts to diversify and how those companies are run starts to diversify. And that gives more opportunity for innovation where you try out different techniques, whether it's different technologies or different management strategies uh, and see how those plan out. And eventually, one or multiple uh, companies are going to win out and prove those methods uh, were the best at the time. So I think that what you, how you interpret it, TJ, is very valid. I think that 
there's that sort of perception shift that they're trying to have. But what I more get out of this quote is that they're developing these technologies for this future goal, and they aren't they aren't the ones trying to develop the methods to get out there so much as they're developing the methods to to use those resources and to mine those resources, which they, as he says, um, energy and mining companies have longer timelines for their projects. So they're taking a long-term approach at looking at their development. So third perspective here, completely different from you two. I think, so, so far, Planetary Resources has launched um, two different things. The first one is called, they're, all their spacecraft have the name the Arkid, uh series. Arcid 3R was a 3U CubeSat, and that was their first thing in space, and it's more of like a tech demo. Validation, yes, we can make space systems. In January, Planetary Resources launched Arcid 6, which is a 6U CubeSat that actually had a mid-wave infrared imager. Um, so mid-wave is like 3 to 5 microns, and that's the wavelength they use to search for water. It was looking at Earth and maybe the moon, um, but like at this wavelength, even if it's embedded in the rocks, the, the hydrated minerals, they're called, um, show up in, in this, these wavelengths. So these are CubeSats. Um, I think I thought what Planetary Resources wants to do is like say, no, 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 we're not a CubeSat you know, startup. We're not um, making a bunch of satellites that are disposable. No, no, this is setting up future payloads, future tech, um, to kind of shift the focus from what they've already done now to pivot toward uh, sort of their next goal, which is the ARCID 301, which intends to do deep space water sourcing. So instead of CubeSat Earth imaging, they want to look toward the asteroid belt. So I, I thought it was the pivoting toward the next step instead of people dismissing them as, oh, they just launch more Earth observation CubeSats. I agree with that as well. It's that idea of long-term development. They, they need to do all the things in order uh, before they can reach their eventual goal. So they're developing that technology, which doesn't exist yet. Um, so Planetary Resources is you know a, a relatively big name in new space and as a CubeSat startup, but there are dozens and hundreds of these companies and some of them uh, don't like to play by the rules. So there's a company called Swarm Technologies, and they were uh, in the news in a very bad way recently for their uh, Space B launch. And they have the distinction in having probably the first illegal commercial satellite launch in record. Um, and so we'll talk about the impact of that. Uh, but first off, uh, this is all from the Spectrum.ieee website uh, that did this initial reporting. Uh, on, the, on January 12th, a polar satellite launch vehicle, PSLV, uh, which isn't part of the ISR, ISRO, Indian Space Program, uh, launched several satellites. And in their manifest, they said they had a two-way satellite communications and data relay devices that had come from the United States. Uh, and they said that that payload was successfully put into orbit. Uh, however, uh, Swarm Technologies, which is, was founded in 2016 by an engineer from Google who developed a spacecraft there and another who sold his previous company to Apple, so that's where they got their startup capital, developed what they called Space B uh, 1, 2, 3, and 4. That's Space B like the, like the insect, the B-E-E. -E. Yes, yes. Uh, and this is part of their... Uh, new space-based Internet of Things communication network. Now, they applied for FCC approval uh, to launch radio uh, transmitting satellites into orbit, and they were denied because the PICO satellites, so these individual satellites are smaller than a CubeSat, uh, would contribute to orbital debris and wouldn't be able to be accurately tracked from the ground. However, uh, obviously they continue with the launch and put it integrated with the rocket, and that rocket put them into space. And so now uh, the FCC has said that Swarm Technologies is banned from launching any new satellites for the foreseeable future, uh, which is a pretty crazy situation. Yeah, why, I mean, can you explain a little bit? Uh, you know more about the background to this than I do. 
This is historic for a number of reasons. This is the first commercial satellite and first commercial satellite company uh, to have knowingly broken the law, uh, the FCC regulations. And I think that's relatively interesting. Like we're in a point of time when there are so many small satellites or so many CubeSats being launched that one slipped through the, slipped through the cracks. Uh, and we could talk about why they did it and whether they should have done it uh, for a while. But it's just interesting that we're reaching a volume where it used to be a satellite was multi-year long development process. And to go into uh, FCC licensing, there's a terrible flowchart uh, that goes through the entire process of licensing a satellite to communicate via radio uh, that I used to know much more closely because I had to apply for those licenses. Uh, but it's terrible and it's 20 to 30 steps. Um, and it's interesting to see that system that has been in place since the earliest uh, days of spaceflight, uh, how that is working in the current environment where there's just so many spacecraft going into orbit every month. So are we entering the wild west of space exploration? I think we're already there. <laughs> I think this is important because it shows how the traditional way of doing things, you know, it's not the FCC's fault. Like they received an application, they did not approve it. Uh, but it shows that a company uh, could get around the FCC. Uh, and the traditional wisdom has been, you know, if you don't get the FAA to approve a U.S. rocket launch and you don't get the FCC to approve the radio communications, the satellite won't fly. Well, they managed to get into space and it's up there. Now they're going to face legal ramifications through that. Uh, but it's just interesting that space that used to be exclusively for governments and it used to be incredibly difficult legally and financially has become this thing that small, very small, unknown companies can have this impact and put up payloads. And with the potential to damage other spacecraft as well. I have a lot of questions on this, especially like, what if you're not U.S. based and you do this? How does you the FCC don't enforce the FCC this stuff? You yeah. do not want to go down that path. It's really awful. That's it's a very like large flowchart. It's like how do they? Big. Oh, how do they enforce all this stuff? This is all, these are questions I'd love to ask. Okay. For the stuff, like, we can have a whole discussion on radio licensing policy, but just for your knowledge, if you're a U.S. company, every satellite has to be approved by the FCC, and they go to the ITU, which is the International Telecommunications Union, and license that. So most satellites, CubeSats, get experimental licenses that say, I can communicate at this frequency up and down. And the ITU approves that, and the FCC handles that for you. For constellations, there's separate licensing and bands and all that kind of stuff. If you're not a US-based company, then you don't have to tell the FCC anything because you're not Americans, and they their country might have an FCC equivalent. But at the end of the day, the ITU gets notified and approved because right. they're the UN of radio telecommunications. Right, and because so that's how that works. If, if they so in terms of the FCC side of this, if they are these tiny satellites that are communicating radio communications, they could be um, one hard to track since they're so small. But also, if they don't have the license, they shouldn't be communicating on those frequencies that the FCC controls, and the FCC can fine them for it uh, according to U.S. law. So that's going to be a problem. But I think another concern outside of the fact that they circumvented a federal agency when they are a U.S. company is that launching these tiny satellites that are really difficult to track contributes to space debris, uh, space junk, where these things are hurtling around the Earth. And if you don't know where it is and you're trying to put up a different satellite that might be in the same orbit, there's a very real possibility of a collision occurring that will destroy the satellites, which is a very expensive mistake to make. Yeah, so especially the, the fast pace of new space, the rapid change in how space um, operations are conducted. Um, I, I think there's a lot of room for improvement in the regulatory structure. Um, TJ, you've talked to me about the National Space Council, um, 
and and how regulation could be managed but the primary thing at the second meeting of the National Space Council was uh, changing regulations, specifically around launching, but also licensing satellites. So that's been a, a big talk uh, at the highest levels of the U.S. Uh, space program. Um, but you might be thinking, okay, so this new space startup uh, was trying to move fast and break things and hit a slow government regulation regulatory body and just try to s- jump it skip over that. However, the existing new space market is very much against this. Um, For example, uh, Nobu Okada, who uh, works for Astroscale at the new space conference, talked about how they were very angry about this case, not responsible to launch such small and trackable satellites, and they don't know how that happened. Catherine Monson, who works for KSAT, said this is a particularly troubling case. Uh, FCC has provided great support to the industry, but this does not incentivize such cooperation. So the rest of the new space industry seems to be against this as well. Um, so it definitely looks like the reckless action of a few people or a very small group of people in the company, um, and it definitely doesn't reflect the current state of new space, even though there's all... there's consistently talk about changing regulation. Uh, in this instance, it looks like the whole industry is against this act. I'd love to um, do some, oh, preferably, I'd love to like have an informed discussion on what that new regulation system could look like. Um, so we're open to suggestions for people to talk to about this, about space policy, um, regulation, and, and how this entire network of things comes together and could be changing the future. Um, so if you know anybody like that or, or have some suggestions on who we should contact, reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs or send us an email at specscast at gmail.com. We also have a Facebook group that's facebook.com slash specscast. Great discussions, lots of news in the past, you know, 36 hours, 24 hours from recording this. It's great to talk about this with you guys. Yeah, there's a lot of cool space conferences that are happening that seem to crop up from nowhere, but there's a there's a lot of cool things happening right now in space. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, subscribe to future episodes and tell your friends. You can check out our backlog of content, including interviews with key space individuals like Tori Bruno, Chris Hadfield, as well as our reactions to the recent Falcon Heavy launch and recent events in space news. We've got a lot more really great discussions lined up for the rest of the year. Um, And let us know what you think of the episodes you've heard so far. Leave us a review on iTunes or your podcast service of choice. And reach out to us on Twitter at RITSpecs to tell us what you think. You can also subscribe to email notifications of future blog posts and episodes by visiting our blog blog.specscast.com slash subscribe. For each episode post, we'll have all the links to different tweets and news articles that we used when we were researching all of these stories we talked about today. We'll be back next week with another discussion on space exploration, science, and technology. Thank you. The views and opinions expressed in this episode are those of the hosts alone and do not reflect the views or opinions of their employers.